Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Phenomenon Radio, the show that covers thought-provoking breakthroughs in the fields of UAP UFOs to discover fascinating truths, first-hand accounts, and investigative insights into the expanding confluence of physical and mental exposure to this worldwide phenomenon. Hosted by Emmy Award-winning investigative journalists, Earth Files reporter and editor, Linda Moulton Howe, and world-renowned experiencer of the 1980 Rendlesham Bitwaters incident, John Burroughs. And now, leading off tonight's program, here's Linda Moulton Howe. Since the 2016 American presidential campaign, Phenomenon Radio has tried to keep up with the persistent rumors from several different groups of military, astronaut, science, and even the rock music Blink-182 star Tom DeLonge, who recently announced that by May of this year, he will have an announcement concerning his work with some government sources to open up some truth about the fact that we're not alone in this universe and we never have been. From my perspective as a TV documentary producer and investigative reporter who has long been trying to understand government silence about publicly reported UFO phenomena, the evolution of physical evidence of an alien presence on Earth ranges from the worldwide bloodless, trackless animal mutilations to thousands of humans reporting missing time and encounters with non-human entities of various sizes, shapes, and colors. Plus, increasing numbers of whistleblowers from military and science who report firsthand knowledge about secret space programs that have been communicating with an alien presence since at least the early 1960s in Project Sigma. Today, in 2017, there is also an increasing number of groups and individuals who are blogging on the Internet about demands for government disclosures to tell humans on planet Earth the truth about UFOs and ETs. One of those bloggers is Cheryl Costa, who has produced since 2013 a popular weekly newspaper blog called New York Skies for Syracuse New Times.com in New York. 
As the name implies, Cheryl reports about the past and present sightings of UFOs over New York State going back to records that are 200 years old. Cheryl says that of all the worldwide sightings that have reached the public, at least 4% of them come from New York State alone. Cheryl was born in April 1952 and today is 65. She served two stretches of military service in Vietnam for the U.S. Air Force from 1971 to 1972 and then was in the U.S. Navy in submarines from 1974 to 1981. Cheryl is now a retired aerospace security engineer. She worked at Lockheed Martin from 1980 to 2011 and then went to work for two newspapers, including the Syracuse New Times. Since childhood in Corning, New York, Cheryl has been intrigued by the UFO phenomenon. From 1998 to 2001, she hosted the X Factor talk radio program in Washington, D.C., covering high strangeness topics. Recently, on March 25th, 2017, Cheryl, with her co-author Linda Miller, released a new book entitled UFO Sightings Desk Reference, United States, 2001 to 2015. And this week, the book exploded on social media and is now ranked number one on Google. Cheryl Costa also calls herself a UFO disclosure activist. After this short commercial break, Cheryl will join Phenomenon Radio to talk about her new book and to describe how she is now joining political efforts to force the U.S. government to open up its UFO files and finally end its strict policies of denial about an alien presence on Earth since at least the FDR administration and World War II. You're listening to Phenomenon Radio with Bent Waters experiencer John Burroughs and Emmy award-winning investigative journalist and Earth Files reporter and editor Linda Moulton Howe. Tonight's special guest, Cheryl Costa. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We'll join the program right after these messages. Stay with us.
Are you ready to read about true paranormal events? Unex Media publishes nonfiction books about UFOs, ghosts and haunted places, time anomalies, cryptid creatures, and more. Just like KUNXDB Radio, it's all about unexplained phenomena. Visit www.unxmedia.com to see our list of great book titles by Debbie Ziegelmeyer, Gene Walker, Devin Listrom, Wayne Lawrence, Bill Spicer, and yours truly, Margie Kay. That's unxmedia.com. Hey there, X-Streamers. Ray Sobs here to tell you how you can tune in to your favorite paranormal programming without using all of your mobile data in the process. When you're on the road and you want to log into the X, save your mobile data and never miss a minute of the UnX Network programming by calling the X line at 667-930-9331. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. Save it to your contacts and dial hands-free. And there's no extra cost to you if you have unlimited minutes. So you can listen to the X at any time, on any phone, anywhere. Check it out at 667-930-9331. That's 667-930-9331. It's brought to you by your friends at theparanormal.radio and the unxnetwork.com. If this is true, we should listen and be grateful. Your new source for alternative talk radio on the internet, The X. Thanks for joining us tonight for Phenomenon Radio Live and tonight's very special interview with Cheryl Costa. This 50-minute uninterrupted segment is brought to you by OnlineVibes.com. To start tonight's interview, here's Linda Moulton Howe. Linda? Hey, thanks, Race. And Cheryl Costa, welcome to Phenomenon Radio with John Burroughs and me. Thank you. And... I would love to have you update our Phenomena radio audience on what has been happening this week on social media and at Amazon.com and Google since the release of your new book just one week ago and Saturday uh, through Amazon.com. And that the title again is UFO Sightings Desk Reference United States 2001 to 2015, and that I understand in just the last 48 hours, social media has exploded because of a press release that I think you had put out. Can you explain to us what all is happening and what you released? Well, what we did was about a couple of weeks ago, I started doing some initial salting with uh, various media sources, see if I could get some small, low-level stories done in, in smaller newspapers. Uh, and uh, I did a story with the Seattle um, Post-Intelligencer, or what they call it, C- uh, Seattle P.I., and uh, they had one of their uh, freelance reporters do a story with me, a guy by the name of Jake Ellison. Well, they they had the article done uh, about a week and a half, two weeks ago. They wanted to wait until the book was officially up on Amazon, and we had we we were still uh, monkeying around with a proof. So we uh, we we told them, sure, wait, wait till we're we're hot, and. Um, uh, we got our second proof, la- proof last Friday. Everything was okay, so we went ahead and released the book, and uh, it was live on. Uh, it was live Saturday night. Uh, 
the the, uh, the 25th. And uh, I, I let Jake know, and he let the editors know, and the story went up about 48 hours ago. And what happened yesterday was two stories went out. He did the one with the Seattle PI. He did a slightly altered version of it and released it with SF Gate, which is a San Francisco Chronicle uh, online edition. And uh, both of them uh, went went through the roof. I didn't know about it initially. And then uh, the SF Gate one, the San Francisco Chronicle one, started going crazy, apparently, in um, social media out there in California because the flavor of it was, the flavor of this, that part of the story was California is number one for UFO sightings based on our study. And uh, uh, it, it started going crazy, and then uh, I started getting email from people telling me, "Hey, you better check up on this. You know, you just showed up in the Grudge Report." I'll be. And done. then I, and then I get an email. Then I get an email from a producer at KNB, uh, KABC Radio Seven Ninety, and uh, they want to talk to me on their afternoon, their afternoon drive time show. So I agreed to do that, and I, I did exactly that last evening. And uh, what was interesting was we watched the actual title of the book on Google. There were two things we were monitoring. One that said Cal- one uh, search line on Google that said California is number one for UFOs, and we saw a flavor of articles piling up. And then we also were monitoring the actual name of the book uh, on another Google. And we, one of the cool things we noticed was uh, all day long, there was a little ad off to the side, and it was for Amazon.com, and it had a, a picture of the cover of our book. And then about supper time, that ad changed to a paid ad from Barnes & Noble with that same logo of our, of our book. And Barnes & Noble literally saw something was going, going down, and they put a paid ad in to cover it. In fact, the paid ad is still running. And that means that Barnes & Noble looked at traffic and realized that they better get ready in their store to get your book available for people who are coming in or how to get it. And Cheryl, this really is important to underscore what we talked about earlier today, that two weeks ago when you were trying to format notices for the release of the book, you sent out, right, a hundred different press releases to a hundred TV, radio, and newspapers with information about this new book and explain to the audience what happened, which has been typical, and why this is so refreshing that it has been counteracted by social media, and now it's uh, got a lot of buzz about it. But what happened two weeks ago? Well, two weeks ago, I spent a couple of days sending out. I already had a planned list of organizations I was going to send it to. I was sending it to the four big TV stations in every principal city in the top ten states, and I was offering them a story because each of their states were in the top ten, which is a good hook. And uh, I reached out to the newspapers in those areas and all of that. And the whole thing added up to about a 100. Nobody responded. Nobody responded. Finally, after about three days, one of the uh, one of the editor the editor from um, the Seattle PI uh, had his uh, had a stringer contact me and said they're going to do an article. 
So I said, fine, great. And uh, we, we sat down one afternoon, did a nice article. I gave him all good stats, and I sent him charts and graphs and all this. And uh, he wrote a real nice article, and then they decided to sit on it till the book was actually hot on Amazon. And uh, what's interesting was I reached out to everybody we thought would have jumped on the thing in a heartbeat. I reached out to Fox and Friends, uh, all of these sorts of things. And amazingly, this is something that surprised me. Just in the last few years, you can't find a news desk telephone number for most of these news organizations anymore. Most of them, they either want you to go through a form or email it to them. I was talking to a TV station here regionally, and I said, you know, I've sent you four letters in the last three weeks. And they, they, they said, you did? And finally, I pitched. I finally got a live guy on their new, on their news desk telephone number this morning and pitched him personally. He said, "Send me over the." And he gave me his personal ID over at the station. And I sent it to him. He got back to me this afternoon and says, "I'm presenting it to the anchors tomorrow. Maybe we'll have a story." You know, so I'm, I'm optimistic. Uh, I got a local PBS station to to agree that we're going to do a story. When they saw the data, they went bananas. I have reached out to PBS. PBS at WGBH in Boston, seven different people out there. I can't get a response from one of them. Well, and isn't it true that there was some editor in one of the hundred that you sent out who uh, either you called or they called you to say, explain the absolute out of it reply that you got from one of those? Oh, okay. I wrote the science editor at a major paper on the West Coast. Uh, and he came back to me and said, no thanks. And I dropped him back a one-liner and said, can you kind of give me a sense of why? And I expected to hear something silly or something like this, but no, he came back and he quite literally said, the issue of UFOs, this is a quote, was settled long ago. And he probably is thinking of Project Blue Book in the 60s that you, I, and all of us know in 2017 was concocted by the CIA to be a red herring, to uh, have a place for the public to report UFO sightings while at uh, on Fort Belvoir, they had a real Project Blue Book where they were getting all kinds of movies, photos, and this ties into even autopsy film on actual extraterrestrial biological entity bodies. That's the huge disconnect that we are dealing with when it comes to the mainstream media. It is so conditioned by government policies of denial and they are missing the biggest story of truth on planet Earth. There's, there's another factor here. Um, I was lamenting this to Steve Bassett of the Paradigm Research Group. He's our Washington, D.C. UFO, UFO lobbyist and disclosure yes. lobbyist. Europe. been doing it for 20 years. And Steve came back to me and he said, you know, here's what's going through their minds. And he said, "Is it uh, what are they going to go up against? Their po- the government policies? What are they going to go up against? Go- government rules? Government security? No. Me as a reporter, I'm going to be ridiculed. And he, 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 he told me, he says, welcome to his, his world. The, what I was up against with the media, he's been dealing with for 20 years. Yeah. And but there are a few of us who have said we're going after the pressure of fact, no matter what, let the chips fall where they may. And I really, Cheryl, I really think it is beginning to shift the 
audiences are far ahead of any government uh, release. And some people in the media that have talk to me privately, they are convinced that we're not alone in the universe. So when you take that uh, title that you are also working under, in addition to being a reporter and a blogger, is a disclosure activist. How are you and others trying to keep pushing this forward, no matter what happens from uh, some of the, we'll say, the rumors that we're going to have some sort of an announcement this summer? Uh, boy, I don't, I, ever since uh, President Obama left office and the, the, the hype we had that it's going to happen any minute, you know, type of thing. I mean, at one point uh, in the last uh, month, just before uh, the, uh, the end of his administration, uh, my editor and I got on the phone one evening and talked. And I said, look, uh, do you want me to write a couple of stories and have them in the can? And just in case, I just got to fill in the facts uh, about, you know, uh, if, if Obama comes forward and calls a press conference and said, uh, we're not alone in the universe, he said, yeah, do it. And we'll just fill in the loose details. You know, and I did. I wrote a couple of stories to, to accommodate that, that scenario. And so this and, uh, happened before the election. Uh, no, no. After the election. Oh, yeah. So you're you were thinking, uh, can we do this even with Trump being elected? But if you go back, Cheryl, let's rack the timeline back into 2016. And you had Podesta tweeting and you had Hillary Clinton on Kimmel suggesting that if she were elected, uh, she was going to get to the bottom of what was in the UFO files except this was the caveat for those documents that were classified in the interest of national security. But I think everybody was feeling that she was going to be elected and that at the beginning of 2016, we were finally going to get one of those big headlines, we're not alone. Did you uh, sense that? And were you trying to ride that wave when you wrote these articles, even with Trump being elected? No, uh, no, I didn't. I I looked at this and said, okay, Hillary's out. This isn't going to happen through Hillary. Um, But I did. Okay, I wrote two articles. One, I wrote one where um, President Obama did this before he left office, sometime in that 30-day lame duck duck period before they inaugurate the new president. And I I wrote a scenario of what it it might look like. You wouldn't believe the hate mail I got. Uh, And then uh, I wrote one uh, It was quite literally titled, Will Hillary Clinton Be the Mother of Disclosure? This is after she lost the election. And the flavor was this, and Steve Bassett was of the feeling that if she would come forward, sit down with a major mainstream reporter of the press and come clean about the, uh, 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 oh, God, now I'm losing, what, what was it called? The, um, I want to call it the Rockwell Project. No, uh, uh, The Rockefeller Health. Initiative. Yes, that's it, the Rockefeller Initiative, yeah. uh, and come clean about that. Because I remember all through the election, Steve kept trying to get these moderators of these debates to bring that question up, and they wouldn't do it. And uh, I'll give you an example here. About t- three weeks ago, I did an article about um, th- there in the past year and a half, they've had, Jimmy Kimmel has had three former presidents – and a presidential candidate 
Hillary, come on. And when he's asked that hard question about the subject matter, they get all kind of awkward and uh, nervously giggle and change the subject. Yes, and, and, I, and I spelled it out. And I said, when is, uh, in my original copy, I said, when is 60 Minutes or 2020 going to ask this question? My editor changed it. When is mainstream media going to ask this question? Yes, and Obama, when he was on with Kimmel and when uh, they were talking about were there really UFO files or not, and uh, Obama said uh, something like, uh, um, I'm not not supposed to talk about it or it's classified, and Jimmy Kimmel said, "Is, is that what you're supposed to say? And Obama said, yeah, that's what they tell us to say. There was always a sense that people had that he was really being literal, not funny. Yes, agreed, agreed. Um, you know, look what they told us back in the 50s. The Canadian prime minister back in the 50s said, um, uh, America treats this subject matter uh, with such high classification that it's classified higher than the H-bomb. And I doubt that it's come down in classification since the 50s. And uh, so, I mean, theoretically, had it come down like normal, dec- I've worked with classified material over the years. There's a, a about a 20, to even in worst case, a 50-year declassification uh, process. This stuff seems to be exempt by it. So this is the goofy part. Yeah, and in all of this, this very complex matrix that is trying to cover up this huge truth, we're not alone, and there is advanced intelligence and it interacts with this planet and has been doing so for millions of years. What provoked you to work with Linda Miller for I think it, you said 16 months uh, on solid weekends to produce UFO sightings de- desk reference United States 2001 to 2015. Well, okay, uh, because I was writing a weekly column. By the way, Linda Miller is Linda Miller Costa. She is my wife. Okay, <laughs> um, so you know. Um, Linda and I had done this 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 comp- compilation. We did this process for New York State, okay? We brought New Fork and MUFON data together. We crunched it. We uh, sanitized it. We put county data into it, and we produced some amazing charts and had some amazing information. And, uh, of course, I was using this stuff in my column. And one night we were sitting here eating a pizza and, and, and said, you know, why don't we try to do something nobody's ever done? Let's, let's try this for the entire United States. Mm-hmm. And of course, we didn't. You know, we both sat there and said, "Oh, maybe it'll take a year." It took sixteen months. You know, um, but sixteen months was that all compiling? No, I had it all crunched out in about ten, eleven months. But it took us the rest of that time to format it and to get it into a form. And then, of course, I had to write some narrative to go with it. And the book looks like a book of, of um, like the Census Department did it. It's got charts, graphs, tables, and we can give you the UFO sightings down to the county level for all 3,027 counties. In the United States? Yes. Wow. And... Tell about the reason why counties and looking at counties and putting them in as a category is so important in the United States. Okay, well, 
New Fork didn't collect that data. MUFON did, but it was dependent upon the person who was making the entry. And uh, we found that a lot of people didn't have a clue what county they were in, you know, because maybe they were out visiting somebody and they saw the sighting and they didn't know what county they were in. Okay. So what we did was by putting it in, you have, especially out in rural areas, you have some of these rural areas are not much more than a road crossing, a cattle crossing. Sometimes it's a road crossing. There's a general store and a volunteer fire department and maybe a half a dozen trailers, and that's the town. And the problem is, is when you start, unless you put a map on the wall and start putting pins in it, you can't see a pattern because you don't know where all these little bergs are. I mean, if I tell you, oh, hey, there's Albany, New York, hey, that's easy. You know, uh, so they had X number of hundred or thousand sightings there. But if I tell you Weltonville, Maryland, uh, Weltonville, New York, you'd say, oh, they, oh, that place had one, you know, but maybe there's 50 of them right there in that county. Right. So we, we wanted to show patterns. And right. because this book was designed to be a researcher's tool and an investigator's tool, um, that's why we did it. And I know how important this is for county uh, analysis in animal mutilations alone, because sheriffs are by county. And if you've got a sheriff in a county that has 256 animal mutilations over a three-month period, which happened in Colorado and the surrounding states uh, more than once, that in a period of time they would be having that many animal mutilations formally in their files in their office. Well, if you said, what happened in Sterling, Colorado, you might have somebody who replied, there wasn't any. But Sterling is the county seat of Logan County, and Logan yep. County would have 263 animal mutilations over a two- to three-month period. And that is shows that if you don't go into the phenomena at a county level and, a, and in uh, England, a county level as well, and in France, you have to do it at province levels. Otherwise, you're going to miss whole data sets. Yeah, I had a lot of people say that they thought that was stupid. You know, you just got to have the city. And they said, it doesn't do you any good. It's okay for big clusters like a major city like New York or something like this. Um, it, it just, it, it, the, the, as, as Linda said to me, when she was doing the layout work, she started seeing patterns that I didn't see when I was compiling the tables. And she started saying, hey, did you notice this, you know? And and I'd get in there and look at it and say, oh, my gosh, I didn't know that, you know. Give me, I'll give you an example. Okay, up here in New York State, if you looked at the sightings for a year based on the month, it's kind of like low through the – we'll say like 5, 6, 7 through the, uh, January, February, March, April. It starts to tick up one or two. Get into May. It's warming up, so it starts going up, and there's this big hump in the middle with June, July, and August being the high season for sightings. And it's usually a very pronounced hump, and then it starts trickling off into the fall, and it gets down low again November and December. Well, we thought that was the classic pattern, and everybody used to say, well, yeah, it's the, it's the summer months. What do you expect? More people are outside. And that's, that was an assumption we made. When we got all 50 states done, that was not the case. We found it was latitude-dependent. Yes. If, 
if you were up around New York State, or go across the country, out to Washington, all through the Midwest, and Michigan, yeah, you had that little hump. You started moving down into the middle latitudes like West Virginia, Virginia, Maryland, and go across the country. It's the, the, those sightings started flattening out. You get into the deep south, and it's rel- It's not exactly flat, but if, statistically it is. And the same thing in crop formations, the same thing in animal mutilations. For those of us who have investigated for a long time, uh, most people, you end up with maps in front of you and you're doing ink. I have the, uh, just, I have a whole shelf of them, maps that I've used and inked. And you begin, you can't help if you're paying attention that where you're placing ink marks and dates begin to cluster along latitudes and that the latitude longitude there probably is a latitude longitude that we're talking about a phenomena that looks at this whole planet the whole sphere as a grid and that the grid isn't just on the outside of the planet it goes from one side of the planet through the planet to the other and there is some kind of a relationship between latitudes and longitudes in a spherical geometry. Now, I'll give you one more cute twist here with the, with the uh, by months type of thing. Alaska, okay? Alaska's high season was January, February, March. It starts decreasing around April. Hits the summer months, it's literally rock bottom. And then towards the end of the summer, it starts going up again. It's a it's a it's 180 out from uh, like uh, New York State or New England. What do you think about that? Well, well, we we sat down and talked about it. When do most people see UFOs at night? Okay, clear skies, that type of thing. They they see it. And what do you got in their summer months? 24 hours of light. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's, it's white nights, you know. And uh, so that, that's, that's what we attribute it to. Now, Hawaii, on the other hand, we had massive spikes quarterly. And all we, I, I've been talking to a couple of travel agents, and the best we can figure out, it happens to be matches the, the seasons when people come there for vacations. Huh. Because you need human minds and eyes uh, to be making reports, which is your database. And so it is consciousness dependent. And I wondered if you could go into what I think is one of the most interesting parts of the United States, the Great Lakes, and talk about, uh, I think you had uh, done an article that was uh, out of 150 that you have done. The one that had the most immediate reaction was uh, titled, Which New York Congressional Districts Have the Most UFO Reports? Ah. You can start with the answers, and then let's go into this whole issue of the Great Lakes. Well, okay, it, it wasn't so much the Great Lakes as much as, um, but it gets there. Okay, what I did was we, when we had done the New York State uh, data, and at the time, all we had was the New Fork data. I did not have MUFON data with this. We took a look at the cities. Now, understand, because of gerrymattering, it wasn't 100% dead on because sometimes you had towns that were half in one district and half in another, okay? But in general, we sort of averaged it out with the counties. And what we did was we did a chart, and we published it. Uh, it was UFOs by congressional district here in New York State. 
And uh, District Number One uh, in New York State is Suffolk County, Long Island. That's down around Montauk Point and all that. In fact, Suffolk County has the most sightings of anybody any county in New York State. Okay. And that was number one. Uh, the 24th district, which is up here up north, goes across um, from around uh, the uh, east end of Long Island, uh, not Long I'm sorry, the east end of Lake Ontario, and up the, uh, it goes up and it covers the Adirondacks, but it also goes up the St. Lawrence Seaway and across the top of New York. So what we started, that was the number two. Uh, to this. It was the 24th district. In fact, that's my district. And um, we were looking at this and saying, wow, that's wild. And there was a lot of it associated with water. But we, we were rather intrigued by the idea that when we did the county charts, everybody knew, all the local UFOologists in New York State all knew the Erie, uh, the Erie lake effect and the niagara uh frontier there was huge amounts of ufo sightings been there for years everybody knew it okay and they call it the leak area effect but when i brought out my county charts there was monroe county essentially around rochester new york right there on middle of uh, lake ontario and uh it had almost as many as erie county okay and uh I sat there and looked at that and I said, wait a minute now, maybe there's a base under Lake Ontario. And I did some research, and I, since Victorian times, they've been talking about the fact that there was a hidden lost culture uh, that lives underneath the lake, you know. Uh, who knows what's there? That's well, all we know is something's there, that's for sure. And Cheryl, wouldn't you say, that's why I brought up the, the Great Lakes as a region I would say, if your work shows this, that there are more UFO sightings over these 200 years in that Great Lakes region than any individual state. Well, you know something we did in the manual, uh, the the, uh, desk reference? We uh, were trying to break this stuff down. And uh, there was no good way to break it, da- break it down by region. So we ended up using the census department's uh, census regions and divisions, okay, because that, that was probably the most consistent, and there was lots of map artwork that would work for us. And uh, that region is part of the, uh, the, middle, the, the Midwest region, and I can tell you what the count was for that. Uh, the Midwest region here was, oh, it's it's uh, it's it, it's carrying 21 percent of America's sightings, and that is um, that is out there around the Great Lakes. Yeah, and the Kinross, for example, when you go through every possible file that has reached the public, I'm not talking about all that are classified deep under uh, the ground. Uh, that the public, that the reports that have reached the public, Kinross Air Force Base, goes all the way back to, it's 51, I believe. And that was uh, over the Great Lakes where two pilots in a plane are scrambled to go up to identify a glowing sphere or light that is over one of the lakes. And as they approach it, they have all the radar data 
in an air, a base that is analyzing what has happened between the approaching uh, U.S. airplane pilots that are going up to identify this UFO and suddenly on the radar and it was recorded. There is a merging of the plane with the two pilots and the UFO and then everything in the sky disappears it disappears to eyes and it disappears on radar. And those pilots in that plane have never been found. And the implication was that was an abduction by a UFO technology of an entire plane and two pilots right there at the beginning of the 50s. Well, let me give you a flavor of something. I've got the, uh, I've got the desk reference open here. And I'm looking at the Midwest. Now, if we're talking, let me tell you about this. Uh, if we're talking far Midwest, we're talking Dakotas, we're talking Nebraska, we're talking Kansas, we're talking sightings in the hundreds, and this is over a 15-year period, we're talking sightings in the hundreds, maybe low thousand, okay? Yeah. If you move over more towards the Great Lakes... Uh, the number starts coming up uh, where Minnesota is connect, touching uh, Lake Superior. That number is now all coming up almost 2,000. Uh, Wisconsin's almost 2,000 sightings over that 15-year period. Michigan, 4,100. Ohio, 4,100. 4, uh, those are all touching a Great Lake. Uh, come over here to New York State where we have Pennsylvania touching Lake Erie, and you got New York State touching Lake Erie and, and, and um, Lake Ontario. We're talking 5,000 and 5,000. Those aren't the actual numbers, but I'm rounding them out for you. And the, the greatest number of sightings in that full 15 years of your data now in this new book is where? Oh, the, the greatest number of sightings in the United States? Yeah. California. And 15,835. 15,835. And where in California is the distribution the greatest in the state? Well, okay, that's weird because uh, they've got uh, a lot of, uh, like 20 of their counties are in the top 100, okay, Uh, or within the top 200 for sure. Um, But Los Angeles County is the goofball here. It had, in that same 15-year period, Los Angeles County had 3,212 sightings registered, and that is more than the individual counts of 40 of the states, one county. And goofiness about this was I saw a documentary about a month ago, and I didn't know this about L.A. Do you know that they've had uh, seen not just individual UFOs, but they saw like squadrons and formations of UFOs before we had man-powered flight? This is like back in the 1880s, 1890s. And if Valley. Right. And remember, in February of uh, 1941, uh, there was the, um, let's see, make sure I'm saying that right. Jap- Japan bombed Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. So February 1942. Yes. That's when we had artillery, uh, several thousand rounds were 
sent up into the air at this clear diamond-shaped object that was over the Santa Monica Mountains, made the front page of the Los Angeles Times. Uh, most everybody has seen the beams from our searchlights and all that artillery and the diamond-shaped object. And somehow the government got away with explaining that they, they thought that this was a Japanese invasion following up Hawaii. And instead of people standing up and saying, but that's, it was a diamond and we spent artillery and it didn't move. And this is not something that is a human made airplane. Why do you think that was? Why didn't more people say it couldn't have been? Japan attacking us in the first place. Well, remember that era, people tended to believe that what the government said to some degree. But let's go. To, let's take this a step further. Um, when I was in the Air Force and I was in Vietnam, I remember listening to a story. This is in late 1971. I remember listening to a story on Armed Forces Radio Network about the um, CIA and the Defense Department briefing a, a, a new crop of young filmmakers from uh, California, like USC and all those kind of places. They were going to give them a classified briefing about UFOs and, and flying and alien craft and all this stuff. The idea being that too many movies made them all look like a bunch of monsters and things, and they wanted to soften the look, okay? All right. Uh, one of those young men, and you can't find record of that story. I have gone through UPI records, I have gone through AP records, and I can't find evidence of that story from that period. It's a very narrow window. It was, it was the fall of 71 when I was in Vietnam when I heard this. Okay, um, One of the people who went there was a, a young guy by the name of Steven Spielberg. Really? Yeah. Now, Carry that a step further. A few years later, yes, he made E.T. and uh, he, you know, uh, all that kind of thing. But he also made a movie uh, about the Battle of Los Angeles, and he made it look asinine. Yeah, you're right. And it was a shock to most people who would have thought that Spielberg would have been as realistic as possible. And and is the implication that he was in that uh, Armed Forces Network briefing about UFOs back in the fall of 71? Yeah. Yeah. And, he, he was one of the early young filmmakers. And do you think it meant that he has been uh, collaborating, cooperating with the government on what he's been doing ever since? I don't know about that. All I know is I saw an interview on a um, – we, we um, had a copy recently, had access to a copy of like the 25-year anniversary of E.T. Uh, and uh, – not, um, uh, not E.T., Close Encounters of the Third Kind, okay? And we were watching this thing, and there was this extra features part of the DVD. And they interviewed Steven Spielberg. He wore sunglasses and wouldn't take them off. And he dodged, there were questions that he dodged, and there were questions that he looked nervous answering. About UFOs and ETs. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, and, and in regard to uh, the uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind movie. In fact, that movie was so carefully guarded, he was afraid. I've heard stories from other people uh, that were uh, in, in Hollywood production that said that he was afraid that if the government got wind of his production operation, I think it was uh, he was shooting, uh, he shot that whole thing in a hangar down in uh, Alabama or someplace, Mississippi or someplace, and that if, he was afraid that if the government got wind, of the movie he was making, they would shut him down. Well, this is very interesting because I left Channel 7, the CBS station in Denver, in the spring of 1983 uh, to go to New York to sign the contract with HBO to start working on a documentary that they were contracting with me called UFOs Past, Present, and Future or not past, present, UFOs, the ET factor, and that a person that I talked to was Robert Emenager, who had been a co-author on UFOs, past, present, and future. And in discussions with him and with other people, as I began doing this work for the HBO special, uh, somebody said, you know, you really ought to talk with Steven Spielberg. Because that's where I first learned about the uh, discussion. They were talking to me uh, as having direct knowledge that uh, Ronald Reagan and Steven Spielberg had talked with each other about the ending of the uh, Encounters movie being quite literal to something that had happened. Okay, so I started trying to get in touch with Steven Spielberg. I really thought... If I uh, can get in touch with him for this HBO special that I'm working on, this would be great for him to finally tell exactly what is behind all these rumors. And I ended up getting in touch with his personal secretary. I explained exactly who I was and what I was doing. She said, that he was in some Asian location getting ready for something that he was going to be doing in the movies. But she said, I think that uh, he would be interested in at least talking with you uh, by phone about this. And I thought, well, even if he would agree to my doing a recorded phone interview, this would be so great to penetrate Will he explain why this rumor is out there ever since Encounters was uh, screened for the world that he had talked with Ronald Reagan? And here was the rumor that Ronald Reagan had whispered in Steven Spielberg's ear. Uh, there's probably only a handful of us in this room who know how true and close to what happened as you're seen at the end of this film. Well, for people who may not have seen that film, it is the gathering of both scientists, abductees, but it's the NASA-looking people uh, in the orange jumpsuits who are going onto this huge, huge craft, UFO, with lights everywhere, and that it has been organized and there is a specific... Uh, agenda for these people from United States NASA to go into this craft with the idea that they are going off to wherever uh, these uh, ETs are coming from. And remember, Cheryl, that cutaway close-up to J. 
uh, Alan Hynek uh, at that scene where all of these people are getting on the UFO. Yes. And Spielberg, if it's true, and then to close out this uh, line, this uh, secretary and I must have talked with each other half a dozen times over three or four weeks. And it was always, listen, he's doing this, but he will get back to you. He'll be back in L.A., blah, 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 blah. And to this date... I never heard from him, but I felt that in that discussion, because of what I was working on for HBO, that it wasn't like, no, this didn't happen. No one ever said that to me. It was he would like to probably talk to you, and it just never occurred. You, um, you, you um, I, I'm, uh, I'm a writer. I'm a creative writer besides my newspaper work. And I wrote a I wrote a story a couple of months ago, just an outline for one, uh, based on that topic. That uh, and it, it, the loose title was the uh, uh, the uh, uh, something that the separated dozen. Yeah. Okay. And uh, there's a great line from one of the part of the treatment where um, one of the op, uh, army uh, military officers had a uh, disagreement with one of the uh, one of the uh, host aliens that have them on their planet, and the guy is saying, uh, mumbling to himself, "Well, it's not like I can do much about it. I'm not going to thumb a ride when you're 47 light years from home." <laughs> Well, it has to be organized, but we have to assume that we're dealing with technology that already they know how to move point to point in the universe. And they're not dealing with a Euclidean idea that it would take 47 years to go 47 light years. Well, true. Uh, it, it took less than a year with the jumps they had to make, but uh, I, I don't want to get into that. Um, the, let's look at our. Let's look at the statistics we're talking about here. In the United States, in the fifteen, in the articles that are out there flying around the internet, it says there was over one hundred and twenty-one, uh, over one hundred and twenty thousand. The number was one hundred twenty-one thousand thirty-six uh, recorded sightings, and this is combined New Fork and MUFON data. Um, and then we break it down. We can break it down by state. In the book, we've got a set of national charts, uh, bar charts. Um, there's some things you have to look at. You just can't say, "Oh, wow, they've been they've been increasing since 19, uh, 2001." Uh, oh, remember 2001 after 9/11, the, the government did tell us to report what we see. Okay, but amazingly enough, they didn't give us a place to report what we see. You call the police department, they laugh you off the phone. You call the editorial department, provided you can get a hold of them at the newspapers. Most of them are not even displaying their news desk number anymore. I found this out over the past month. Uh, and, and they'll laugh you off the phone. Um, and in my case, the last three weeks, I did have editors that talked to me, and I got laughed off the phone. I had the phone slammed down in my ear. Um, I got shouted at, that's silly, that's stupid, that's crazy. What kind of a lunatic are you? Uh, This this is about 10 editors that I talked to. And how does the government of the United States since World War II get such a strong chokehold on otherwise cynical wanting to tell the truth and beat their competition to great stories, how have they managed to con the mainstream media? 
Well, the CIA bought anybody of any significance, uh, any significance of control out. Um, uh, I don't know the guy's first name. His last name is Reese. Um, he does uh, some kind of a radio show. And he, I read a thing by him on the internet where he worked for, um, down around Poughkeepsie, he worked for uh, a major paper down there. And they had one of those big sightings of a, of a boomerang down there. 10,000 people at a county fair saw this thing. He took pictures. One of his photographers took pictures. They personally developed the pictures. And they took it in, showed it to the, the publisher and the senior editor, and the publisher said, we're not going to print it. My God. And doesn't that imply that a lot of people in so-called publisher editor positions are getting another paycheck from the CIA, NSA, DIA? And that's been happening since World War II when Walt Disney was doing double duty for the United States government with yep. his operations as a Hollywood uh, creator of children's films. Um, I sat down with when I first tried to try to write and get New York skies going, I, I went to see 13 different editors and I pitched an editor vice president and he actually liked the idea at one particular large paper up here in New York. And, but, but when he went back to his editorial board, um, they, they, they laughed it off. In fact, oh, we should also do a column on uh, uh, ghosts and, and this and that, you know, and it just got ridiculous. And he said, look, I, if I were you, I would run and run very hard from here. And I, I did. And then I found a, a weekly and with the Internet coming online, a weekly uh, on an online edition has worldwide access. And, and uh, after our column got going, my editor called me in about six months later and said, you do realize you've got inter- international fanship. You know, so, you know, I've done very well with a weekly paper and doing New York Skies that way. Well, and Cheryl, you're underscoring something that I think is absolutely true today and why some of us are feeling that the public is moving on beyond government policies of denial now, largely because there have been thousands and thousands and thousands, maybe in the millions of people who since World War II have seen UFOs or non-humans up close, who have had exposure in the military, in government service, and they know, they know Truth. They know facts and they, uh, like whistleblowers, they talk to some of us. Uh, we're going to go into a break now. And when we come back, what I'd love to do is pick up with you on whether any of your experiences in the Air Force and the Navy provoked your interest further in UFOs. Thank you, Linda. This 50-minute uninterrupted segment is brought to you by OnlineVibes.com. You can visit the website at OnlineVibes.com, and that's Vibes with a Z. It's your personal connection to mind, body, and spirit and committed to connecting you with healing modalities that can manifest a true and healthy change in your life. That's OnlineVibes.com. Don't go anywhere, everyone. Cheryl Costa will rejoin the program right after this brief message. Stay with us. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I want to thank all of you for listening to The X. But did you know you can watch live streaming video and catch your favorite video casts on the UnX Network YouTube channel? Wow, you mean I can watch The X shows anytime? That's right. Watch any show anytime, even binge watch your favorite programs. Which shows are on the UnX Network YouTube channel? You can watch Most Haunted with Dan Terry, Entity Voices, Paranormal Evidence, Paranormally Blonde, and Unexplained Phenomena Australia, and many more. Also, be sure and catch live coverage of special events and special broadcasts from the UnX Network. That's great. I'm going to subscribe to the UnX Network channel right now. Awesome. You can find everything you need to know about the YouTube channel at UnXNetwork.com. That's UnXNetwork.com. It's your one-stop shop for everything unexplained. It's the new mainstream. It's the UnX Network. Do you have an interest in the paranormal? Then you'll love the UnXNetwork.com. The X is your streaming audio and video for everything supernatural, strange, and mysterious, like UFOs, Bigfoot, ghosts, and so much more. From hosts like Jimmy Church, Whitley Strieber, Micah Hanks, and Christina Gomez, visit the UnXNetwork.com show page for a complete list of all the paranormal programs you'll find on The X. Be sure to follow us on Twitter for updates at KUNXDB. Follow our Facebook group, UnXNetwork. Find the podcast on Spotify, iHeart, Audible, and Apple Podcast. It's time. It's new. It's the X. X. You're listening to Phenomenon Radio Live. Before we begin Hour 2 of tonight's interview with Cheryl Costa on Phenomenon Radio Live with John Burroughs and Linda Moulton Howe, it's first time for the news. Brought to you by EarthFiles.com. Here's Linda Moulton Howe. Thank you, Race. What has been making very powerful and rapid radio bursts the past 10 years from 2.5 billion light years from Earth? The first recorded fast radio burst was in 2007 by the Parkes Radio Telescope in Australia. The power of that radio burst was 500 million times the power of our solar system's sun, but it lasted only five milliseconds. It might have been some astronomical body that blew up, except that five years later, on November 2nd, 2012, in the same place, there were two more repeating bursts that are now known as FRB 121102, which stands for the date and fast, uh, the uh, fast radio bursts. Since then, there have been 15 more recorded by Earth scientists to date for a total of 18 of these recorded mysterious fast radio bursts coming from the same spot in the cosmic sky. Of the total 18 recorded fast radio bursts so far, half of them, nine, were recorded over a six-month time period only last year in 2016. 
And the ones doing the recording were the Very Large Array in Dadal, New Mexico, and the Arecibo Radio Telescope in Puerto Rico. Cornell University astronomer Shami Chatterjee, he's a PhD, described what had been learned so far about the repeating radio, fast radio bursts in a January 4th, 2017 article in the prestigious journal Nature. Dr. Chatterjee says about the nine fast radio bursts in those six months, quote, well, we definitely know for this one case anyway, that the radio burst is not cataclysmic, meaning whatever has been emitting the burst is not being destroyed by them. Whatever the source is has become the subject of intense speculation by astrophysicists and astronomers. In the March 9th, 2017, Astrophysical Journal Letters, the chair of Harvard University's astronomy department and director of Harvard's Institute for Theory and Computation and the Black Hole Initiative, proposed with his Harvard co-author, that fast radio bursts could be interstellar light sails pushing payloads up to a million tons each, quote, large enough to carry living passengers across interstellar or even intergalactic distances, close quote. This is Harvard. Why would we see such intense rapid radio bursts on Earth in the first place? Well, the Harvard University scientists theorized that to power a light sail near the speed of light would demand a transmitter the size of Earth, beaming radio waves with a wavelength of tens of centimeters. That's much, much longer and slower than a visible light. Now, this sail... It has to be made of material that reflects light well in the radio wave frequencies. We humans, we're already testing right now on Earth the concept of using laser photons in the infrared frequency to push light sails toward the speed of light. And this is the now famous Starshot project. Professor Avi Loeb at Harvard is leading the Breakthrough Starshot uh, advisors. And this whole group was funded one year ago at the uh, March of 2016 or April with $100 million from Russian venture capitalist and physicist Yuri Milner. It looks like it might be a decade before Earth scientists launch our first light-propelled starshot toward Alpha Centauri and the Proxima B planet there. But if those mysterious fast radio bursts keep being recorded, it could mean that we are babies in a universe where intelligence at least 2.5 billion years ahead of us have been using light frequencies to propel huge cargo ships on interstellar trade routes that have existed for millions of years before primates stood up on planet Earth in the Milky Way galaxy. This is Linda Moulton Howe. Please stay tuned to Earth Files News Updates and visit every day my science, environment, and real X-Files news website, earthfiles.com. For more unbreaking stories about our universe, this solar system, 
and the planet we live on. And that's the news brought to you by earthfiles.com. And now back to the program. Thanks, Race. And Cheryl, thinking about the media's disconnect, that when they are presented an entire more than 300-page book that is breaking down all kind of data that supports thousands and thousands of eyewitnesses, 15,835 in California alone in a 15-year period, that you would think at the top of the at least newspaper heap for the last 200 years would be the New York Times. Have you had any dialogue with them about this book or UFOs? Um, I've had access to a retired guy who used to work for them. And I asked his advice and actually asked him if he could uh, get me an audience with somebody over there. And he basically... Uh, he's got a copy of the book. You know, he ordered one the other day. He just got it. And he said, you're going to have to, these guys are really, the, 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 the New York Times has always been very conservative on this topic matter. And uh, if you remember from the, the uh, pile of, if you, anybody who's ever seen the microfilm of the front page of the New York Times in the period of just prior to and leading up to Roswell, knows that that everybody at that paper made a lot of fun of people who reported these things. So they've never been terribly supportive. When the Condon people came out with their report back in 1968, they published major pieces of it in the Sunday paper. And you know, Cheryl, that really says to me that in the upper echelons of the New York Times from World War II, exactly like Walt Disney, that they had people plugged in between uh, the CIA came into existence September 18th, 1947, and that they would have to have wanted to have major executive control over this great secret that they wanted to keep from the world, UFOs and ETs, and we're not alone in the universe, and they've been here for millions of years. And that to do that, they would have to have monitors and sensors that nobody would know about, including the reporters in the New York Times, but that in the upper echelon executive branches, and I've been told this directly from somebody who knew for a fact they would have the ability to stop stories that would be telling the truth from World War II on. Well, the, the, the issue that came up with me in my conversation with my friend was, uh, and this guy's retired, and he told me that uh, my book, he said, I didn't have a good enough pitch. I said, look, I've got the most distinctive book of statistics ever compiled about UFOs. It's a unique snapshot of the first 15 years of the 21st century. It deserves a look. And he says, what, what's in it for the paper? Why would they be interested in this? Wow. You know, what, uh, what, what makes it top uh, Trump or anything else is going on? Okay. And at first I was kind of lost for words. And then, then I, Linda and I came up with these commentaries to, that I'm going to be sending back to them. Um, okay, we've compiled a book of data. Okay, Where are the statisticians and analysts to research what we've done? Use it. Of what we've done. Where, are the, where is the academic community that will do a peer review of our work? 
if there is a ridicule-based career impediment restricting researchers and academics uh, into doing heavy-hitting research on this topic, why isn't the media asking why? Pilots, astronauts, and law enforcement officers see these things all the time, but they, too, are confronted by career restrictions and ridicule. Where are the mainstream scientists to get to the bottom of it all? Where is the fourth estate asking why isn't the research being done, especially in the light of such vast sighting numbers? And Cheryl, I can share that I have talked with a man who worked for a division doing a retrieval work for MJ-12. I've seen his eyes and heard the story. And that in the process of going on an assignment where there was a very puzzling interaction from extraterrestrials, that our government through Project Sigma had been able by the 1970s to have at least rudimentary contact with what are called the Ebens, the one with the pear-shaped heads and the gray skin and uh, walnut-shaped eyes, and they are considered to be allies. And that the reason that we tried through Project Sigma to get a hold of the Ebens was because our government was baffled about what some blonde ETs had done in a city in Arizona, and they wanted Eben help. And in the process of all of this, this man said his assignment was to experience what a telepathic download from one of these Ebens would be like, and that his superior officer in the Air Force outlined exactly what they were going to do and said that this was one of the Eben entities that they worked with and everything was friendly uh, and that the Eben uh, would try to stay near the ground. He said they don't like to be on the ground and that's why they float. It's just anti-gravity technology that they have. They can neutralize gravity anytime they want to, but they know that humans freak out. And so he said that the Eben agreed to walk on the ground toward him, and his superior officer said, when the being gets within about six to seven feet of you, its head will begin to raise up because he is going, the the creature, the entity, the Eben is going to communicate with you. That's what we want you to experience. But once the eyes have met your eyes, you, this man t- telling me his firsthand story, you will no longer be in control of your mind or your body. Be prepared for it. And the superior officer said, you will collapse, but we will be ready for it. Uh, we've been through this before. He said, the one thing I'm ordering, I'm ordering you. Your body is going to want to run. It's called cellular fear. This is truly alien. You're going to want to run. And I'm ordering you as your commanding officer to stand your ground for as long as you can. And the man said, I, I, uh, I was just laughing inside myself. This is stupid. I'm fine. Every, everybody's here. And then he saw the being and saw it coming, walking, and it got to six feet 
And he, he said, against all of my will, the, my legs began to shake and then my whole body began to shake. And I wanted more than anything else to go from that spot, not because anybody was doing anything. It was that weird. And he said, when the eyes hit his eyes, it was like seven feature films going through his head all at once with gold three-dimensional symbols superimposed over all seven films and that he knew that his mind was somehow trying to fire questions and that every question was creating another film in his mind. Therefore, he began to realize that everything in the communication from this being was in symbols and was in three-dimensional like holograms of real scenes. And he fainted. And when he became conscious, it was four hours later and he was in a gurney and he was fine, except he said to me, all of us want to learn about the universe by sitting down and having coffee with an E.T. like Spielberg's. And he said, what I've just told you is why it is so difficult to introduce any of this, because even if they are our allies, they can't talk verbally. It's all telepathic. It's all a consciousness thing, and and uh, uh, I, I used to live in a Buddhist monastery, and that was the heavy lesson that they taught us was uh, that someday we would be called upon to be able to use our stable minds. So, yeah, that rings good with me. So, yeah, can you talk about that incredibly fascinating remote viewing that you started teaching students when you were in that Buddhist m- monastery? Uh, Let me give you one more thing about the book so you know. All right. Um, It got its classification today uh, uh, for library classification. Oh, yeah. And it has a library call number, which is called a TL789.4. Okay. Okay, now a TL789 uh, happens to be a classification for uh, motor vehicles, trucks, airplanes, spacecraft, Rockets, all via, all powered vehicles, and this is in the Congressional Library. This is in the Congressional. This will be in the. This is what the Congressional uh, Library of Congress uh, call number will be. Well, at least it's not going into fiction. No, it's not. It's not. <laughs> um, uh, so. Uh, <laughs> I just wanted to share that point that this thing is not being this is not this particular one is not being pushed off as as uh, some silliness. It's been it's been classified in in with the technical books because it is called a reference book. Good. And part of the reason we did it as a reference book, we wanted it to go into public libraries. There was a very sad, we did a little study about a year ago. We noticed that libraries don't seem to have an awful lot of UFO books. And uh, my co-author, being a librarian, said, hey, you know, there seems to be this, maybe there's something to this truth embargo stuff on the idea that there's been this 
conspiracy of uh, censorship done in the form of if we make the topic silly, they, books like this won't end up in libraries and people won't learn about it. Right. Uh, so we did this to be a book, a, a reference book. And where do reference books typically go in a library? They go in the reference section, right there with Jane's fighting ships and the Census Department reports and that type of thing. And that's why we wrote this book the way we did. Yeah, a lot of people are going to look at this thing and, hey, it's just charts, graphs, and numbers. But it's there for investigators and research. We've summarized it for you. So that's kind of where we're, where, where, what our mentality was. Let me tell you about remote viewing. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was a Buddhist. I was an ordained Buddhist nun from 1997 through 2004. Seven years, more or less. Uh, my lamas let me move on to other things in 2004. Okay. I, I hold a different kind of rank now. Okay. And I ran a small center in upstate New York for a period of time. And since I was basically running the center, um, I allowed some flexibility to people. They didn't necessarily have to come there to study Buddhist theory, but I was teaching them mostly meditation, that type of thing. And I had the opportunity to have an instructor from the Farsight Institute, uh, that's um, Courtney Brown's crew and uh, come and teach uh, a four-day a four class at my center for uh, some of their paid, paid students and some of my people. And uh, so thereafter, I taught classes with other people who wanted to study it. And one of the things we had in our stack of target cards, uh, these things were loaded randomly. Uh, I had no idea where, what ones were where. I usually had a hundred of them in the tub, you know. And so when we did a remote viewing session, uh, you know, and kind of reach in there and draw something out, and there was a number on it, and that number got conveyed to the remote viewers after they had a chance to kind of cool down and meditate and all that kind of thing. And one of the things that was very cute with several classes, eventually they all got a card. They would, they would, they got all done with the remote viewing, and then I said, "Well, what were your feelings about it?" And of course, they don't know what's on. They don't know what the target was, and they almost always, consistently, when this particular card uh, came up, they all came back and says, "Those people didn't knew we were there, and they didn't like it that we were there, and they wanted us to leave." And where and, was and that? This was, Four different classes that's happened, okay? And uh, so we're talking about 25 people or so over a period of four classes. And the target was the alien bases on the back of the moon. And this happened consistently in these four different classes? Yes. Wow. And now, what is your perspective on the David Wilcock, Corey Good discussions about everything from pyramids under the ice in Antarctica from millions of years ago to intergalactic trade routes and that uh, they are probably at the furthest edge. But that ties directly into they've been saying for four years that the moon, the backside of the moon is the territory of uh, reptilian humanoids who don't like humans, and they're the ones who warned us off. Oh, well, somebody warned us off, uh, and that's all I know. Uh, I, I, I 
read several things within remote viewing circles, and uh, somebody warned us off. And, of course, there's been a lot of talk in the UFO community about what the astronauts really experienced when they were there and such, um, things that were on uh, recorded by ham radio operators on, a, on private medical channels, things like this. I can't talk to any of that. I really don't know. But, um, yeah, well, the, the, that's why I did those particular target cards to see if um, – uh, other remote viewers were aware of this, you know, and it, it, like I said, it came up very consistently. Um, so it was a, a, a it was a very very interesting experiment, um, and, that, and that's pretty much it for the remote viewing. Do you remember what it was that various astronauts? said or was in medical transcripts. Uh, I'm wondering if what you're implying, I remember Edgar Mitchell, he had that epiphany that the, the entire universe was connected. It was all one thing. And, oh, yeah. and he described that. But I've also heard rumors that astronauts uh, had strange dreams uh, that there may have been telepathy. Have you? Do you know anything, even if it's rumored? No, I, I don't know anything along that line. But as a as a, as a Buddhist teacher, um, I will tell you that the every every living thing in the uh, to use a line from Star Wars, everything living thing in the universe is connected, and and life force is what binds the universe together. I mean, I'm going to use that that fabled line, but it's true. And uh, one of the reasons I taught the remote viewing to my Buddhist students, and I had some metaphysical students in there as well, was to show them how much they could learn from, okay, there's two things. If you pick up, a, if I give you an orange and you pick it up, you experience that orange, okay? And once you taste it, you know what an orange tastes like. But if I've got a fruit over here you've never seen and you don't know what it tastes like, Unless you bite into it, you have not experienced it. Well, remote viewing gives you the ability to know something without experiencing it. And remember that. Let's go right into remote viewing again. Thank you, Linda, for the latest in science, the environment, and real X-Files. Visit the award-winning website, earthfiles.com, with over 2,000 in-depth reports that go way beyond the 6 o'clock news. That's earthfiles.com. Folks, we're going to be right back with the final segment of tonight's program, Phenomenon Radio Live. We'll be right back. Are you ready to read about true paranormal events? Unex Media publishes nonfiction books about UFOs, ghosts and haunted places, time anomalies, cryptid creatures, and more. Just like KUNXDB Radio, it's all about unexplained phenomena. Visit www.unxmedia.com to see our list of great book titles by Debbie Ziegelmeyer, Gene Walker, Devin Listrom, Wayne Lawrence, Bill Spicer, and yours truly, Margie Kay. That's unxmedia.com. 
Hi, I'm Ray Sobs, and I'm here to tell you about something I really think you're going to like. The Unex Network is a part of a larger group called Unex Media, and one of the things we offer is the quarterly Unex Magazine, which is available both in print and digital formats. This amazing magazine covers all aspects of the unexplained and makes for a great coffee table periodical that is certain to spark enlightening conversations in your living rooms. We invite you to check out the latest digital issue for free. Just go to unxnetwork.com forward slash membership and fill out your free membership with your name and email and become a new free member. The new summer issue is now available and the theme is Time Anomalies, which includes a feature article written by our managing editor, Lee Spiegel. Just go to unxnetwork.com forward slash memberships. That's unxnetwork.com forward slash memberships and get your free e-copy of the Unex magazine today. Are you intrigued by Paranormal Talk Radio? You'll love the new Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live. You'll find a great selection of talk shows covering UFOs, ghosts, strange phenomena, and much more. Download the Paranormal Radio app now and start listening to the very best in Paranormal Talk entertainment, including the network you're listening to right now. The Paranormal Radio app, free in Google Play and the iOS App Store. Get the X's streams on TalkStream Live, Paranormal.radio, and tune in. Bringing you the best host on the biggest network, The X. Welcome back to the final segment of Phenomenon Radio Live with tonight's very special guest, Cheryl Costa. And to start the final segment of the interview, here's Linda. Thanks, Race. And Cheryl, as we were talking about just before the break, about the whole issue of the moon, your remote viewers in the Buddhist monastery that didn't know that they were getting a card to remote view the backside of the moon, but that you had over four classes, different classes, a consensus of coming up and people asking, well, what, wherever you had us go, Whoever was there and using the term people, those people didn't want us there. Can you pick up from that and what else you've experienced in this whole issue of astronauts on the moon and space and ETs in our own solar system and there? Okay. Well, let me give you two flavors. Um, You can hear me okay, yes? Yeah. Okay. Um, Okay. I remember when I was studying remote viewing that – there was a, an event with um, uh, 1985, Ingo Swan, who was like the father of remote, modern remote viewing. Um, some intelligence people came to him and wanted him to re- uh, do a remote viewing on, uh, they had an envelope, it was like triple, triple packed kind of thing. Uh, uh, and um, so uh, he did the remote viewing on it. And he came out of it, and he had a very similar thing. Hey, wherever I went, the beings were aware that I was there, and they didn't like the fact that I was there. Where the heck did you send me? And they told him. And it was the same place. And uh, 
so uh, that that ra- I, heard, I read once that that rattled him big time. All right, let's move fast forward to my classes. Something I discovered working with these remote viewing uh, classes. Uh, a lot of people always do the remote viewing. They send one remote, remote viewer there. I like the idea to use a Star Trek term to use an away team. Some people resonate with, we'll say, the environment. Others resonate with the emotion of the place. Some emo- resonate with the energy of the place. Some uh, resonate with the beings that might be there, if there are any. Okay, And I like sending an away team to a target. Okay, because you get a very rich um, um, yield of of mind information. So, okay, something we discovered, if I sent the remote viewing team to, we'll say, uh, uh, the Eiffel Tower in France, and they'd all all come out of the thing, they got sketches of the, they've got descriptions and sketches of the Eiffel Tower. I could send them to the Washington Monument. I could send them to the Lincoln Memorial. Oh, yeah, they, they got all this stuff. If I sent them to the Titanic, where it is now. On the bottom of the ocean. Two miles underwater. Uh, some people couldn't go there. Hmm. Something in their subconscious didn't, they didn't know where they were, I was sending them, but something in their subconscious, uh, the part that connects to everything, said, uh, I can't. Okay? And I made notes of that, and I saw this pattern with this particular target. And then I tried it. I noticed a similar thing. There were people in the in the in the in the class that couldn't make it to the moon. People who were normally I had already tested. There were really good remote viewers on what I'm going to call terrestrial targets. They were fine. Okay, I could move them across time. I could move them all over the world. They were fine. As soon as I tried to send them off the planet to the moon, they couldn't get there. They put their pens down and said, I can't do this. Why do you think? At what level is there this resistance? Well, let me let me give you one more level. When I sent, we had a target. I did again. I didn't know what the target was at the time. Uh, it was to go find Curiosity on Mars. Okay, I had one guy drawing this thing out. He he literally was drawing the thing in the margins of his of his worksheet. Okay, and but a half the class couldn't get there. Okay, now the last one we did that was like this, and this is about the two years ago in my last class that I taught, uh, a target card was in there, go to Voyager. Now, it was just going outside of our solar system. Right. Okay, no, but only one person in the class, and this one, this lady's a real free spirit and a real risk taker. She went there, she crawled all over the thing, and she had all kinds of great sketches and stuff written about it and everything. But nobody else could go. And again, they didn't know what the target was, but something said, I can't go there. I, that's too far. I can't do it. What and you- all we can figure is there's some subliminal sense of the spirit uh, has this fear to let go, almost like a self-preservation kind of thing, but at this deep spiritual level. Okay, so you mean that the soul, which is the animus of the organic body container, that the soul itself, and I'm assuming as a Buddhist that you are without any question that reincarnation is the machinery of the universe. 
the recycled yeah. souls. So we're talking the, the consciousness of that person, or at least that instance of consciousness that is each for individual person. It's, that's a perception anyway. It's not real, but it, it, we'll just say it is real for the sake of argument. Um, uh, had the sense that they could or couldn't do this, but they were never. Their conscious mind was never informed where they were going. Well, the the big issue that you're raising here is what is the relationship between any given soul or soul spirit, as Steiner would say in Theosophy, and the universe that we're in in this particular universe, and then the divine field that would have been the emanator and the creator of all that there is, and that the recycling, it is assumed, is going in and out of different universes and dimensions for the teaching of the soul, and eventually for the souls to all return to the divine field. That is sort of a combination of uh, of a Gnostic point of view, and that this universe may be one that is uh, a little rough for teaching on souls. Why do you think that any soul would not be able to connect with the fabric of this universe and go to Mars or a star system 2.4 billion light years or to the end of the universe at 13.8? What would be missing in the soul in relationship to this universe where we're all supposed to be connected? Okay, as a Buddhist yogi, I'll, I'll explain it this way. First thing, we're all part of the same force, okay? And the fact that we think we're individuals is a, an illusion we put on ourselves. It's a concept we define upon our consciousness. If we think we're separate from the universe, then uh, we, we have sen- essentially set up a, a rigidness between us and the rest of the universe, okay? Uh, a lot of religions teach us uh, it's out there someplace. No, it's, it's, it's within you, but because we have this deep-seated belief that we're separate from it, then that's the issue. Uh, and then the soul or this this defined separated consciousness, not really separated, but it thinks it is, okay? Lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. And it can't, uh, it develops certain fears and inhibitions and over the lifetimes, and uh, that's sort of their karma, and they carry this stuff along with them, and uh, they don't believe they can do certain things, okay? And it's too big. And at the, sub, at the very subconscious level, at, at that consciousness level, these fears came into play. And I was as surprised as anybody to see it. And I started tracking it over several, over several classes, and I started seeing that the same consistent problems were coming up with certain target cards. I could almost guarantee certain people in the class weren't going to be able to go to one of these locations. Now, do you think that... The inability is because that particular soul had been on the moon or Mars or under an ocean or someplace cosmic. Nope, nope. Uh, I'll go again. I'll stay with Buddhist theory. Their fears controlled them. That the fears would have to have come from what, though? We're talking about souls. What would souls have ever... Fears are carried from lifetime to lifetime. It's part of our personal uh, short-term karma. Right, but 
that's exactly my question. Would the implication be that the souls that are in these body containers at your monastery now were souls that were in ETs, uh, something that was on the moon or Mars or beyond and that they had some bad life? Nope. Uh, I, I never, I never felt that that was the issue. It, uh, it, when we went back and started looking at how they act out of the remote viewing kind of context, uh, I very frequently found that uh, certain ones, you know, uh, oh, I don't like to go up there. It's uh, I don't like to go up to Harris Hill because it's too high and I get scared of heights or um, I'm afraid of this, I'm afraid of that. You started being able to find out what people's foibles were. And it took a little while of having like, coffee with people to get a sense of what their fears are. And uh, that's what, to me, that's what it seemed to be. But uh, um, what it, but I didn't realize how deep it went until we did the remote viewing. And then we started seeing a pattern of how deep it could go. What kind of souls are fearless? Um, well, let's say it, they are beings that have uh, let a lot of that, a lot of fear go and are risk takers. Okay. And- and could you see that in the personalities of the people? Yeah, because it seemed to me that the people who did the best at remote viewing were musicians and artists. And um, artists that were, what I'm going to call, even if, as a hobby artist, they were somewhat successful at what they did. They weren't afraid to try, afraid to try something new with their art. And if it failed, it failed, and they just moved on and tried to make it better. There are some people who try to do something in art, and if they fail, they don't touch it again. I try to teach people how to make bread, and they're, they, they fail with that first loaf, and they're defeated by a little loaf of white bread, and they never try it again. <laughs> yeah, well, as a Buddhist yogi, I suspect that you have tried to remote view a target that would relate to UFOs, ETs. Yes. Can you talk about that? Um, okay, uh, let me say it this way. Uh I, I think some of the experiencers are going to come out and talk about uh, uh, flying starships, okay? Yeah, they do. And, and they're probably going to talk about being able to t- – uh, some of the ships having like a ball that's on a string, and they put their hand, wrap their hand around it, and now they're kind of fused with the, the consciousness of the ship. There's other ones where it's a pedestal, and they put their hand on the ball on this pedestal, and they, they, they are one with the ship, and they can move. All of this is a part of consciousness. Remember you were telling us about the guy who had the, the telepathic connection with the ET, and it knocked him for a loop? Right. Well, that's going to be the biggest part of our disclosure problem is because a lot of this is about consciousness. I watched a, I watched a llama. Uh, there were several people on. A, we were in kind of on a little hike up in the up in the up in the mountains. This is in uh, uh, New Mexico, and we all sat down for a rest and sit there and crack our little juice packs and like that. And we're sitting here, and he wanted to meditate, so we all sat down on some rocks and sat there and just quieted ourselves. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he says, "They're here." We said, "What?" We looked out over the next hill. And this shiny thing kept bobbing up, peeking up over the hill. 
and he kind of just said, it's okay, you can lift up. And this here was the shiny object, and here it rose up, and there, there was a saucer-shaped craft. And, uh, and he, he literally would sit there and say, uh, move a little bit to the right, and the craft would move to the right. Move a little bit to the left, and the craft would move to the left, you know. And uh, finally he said, goodbye, and uh, uh, safe, uh, safe journeys on your trip, and the thing, gone, you know. And I've heard other stories from other uh, novice students that have gone out with this guy that they've seen similar things, you know. Um, so uh, this whole idea that's going to come down probably in the next few months, maybe with this uh, uh, guy from Blink or whatever, um, uh, if he's talking about what a lot of the experiencers are talking about, uh, it's going to be this whole thing of disclosure is not about technology as much as it's about the fact that being to being, it's about consciousness touching consciousness. And that's where the real bridge between us and them is going to have to come from. Cheryl, why do you think it is that in almost 100% of all of the interactions whether it's reptilians, blondes, ebens, oranges, blues, that part doesn't seem to matter in this particular area, that they are all telepathic, that it is mind to mind in their worlds, but not us. Why do you think the Cro-Magnon Homo sapiens sapien was made so far, not to be telepathic, which disconnects us as individuals. Every human is like an island. And when it comes to then having telepathic downloads from something else, from somewhere that is dealing in zeros and ones or images or gold symbols, humans are at a kind of disability. And is it purposeful? Well, our culture tends to beat it out of you. Okay, uh, our culture tends to um, beat this stuff out of you. Um, uh, I'll give you an example. I used to uh, watch this one friend of mine's kids, and they were they were in three, four year old type of range, and there was two other kids, and they were like uh, seven or eight years old. And the three or four year old were sitting there playing on the floor, and they, you know, and they were talking and everything. And the more I listened to them, I just sat there listening, and I listened to a very old man in that little three uh, three four year old kid's body complaining about some stuff so i just casually said oh what kind of car do you have and he told me a car it was very much a car it was available 10 12 years ago okay that type of thing so people don't listen to kids oh they just jabber but if you listen to kids before a certain age of losing their innocence uh definitely under five around five no later than six they are still connected with a little bit of the old persona Right. And you can't just get in there and start asking them questions. You have to kind of sit there and play with them and then just casually say, oh, uh, uh, what does your kitchen look like? And then they will start describing it, Right. you know, and it's not the one their mother has, you know. So th- there, uh, there's a lot of this in, 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 in our culture beats it out of you that we our our schools tend to beat the creativity out of kids i know my teachers did everything they could to beat it out of me and i i still have nightmares about writing 500 times on the blackboard i will not tell tall tales because i want i i was evolving into being a writer well you know 
we're getting up close to maybe you know, five, seven minutes left. And what I'm really curious about is at this point, your perspective on which alien type with which agenda do you think is actually in control of the uh, planet behind the scenes and what you expect if we're going to be presented with any kind of headlines officially from governments with Vatican support, what do you think is likely to be the first break in the ice? That's a hard call because, you know, uh, we know the Nordics have been having, and the Palladians have had a, a big influence, okay? Uh, we know that the grays of the flavor that Whitley Strieber talks about, um, I remember uh, in the 1980s seeing the cover of the book Communion, and I stood 25 feet away from it, and I couldn't get any closer to it. You know, and I just sat there and looked at that and says, why is that creeping me out? You know, so, you know, uh, I think I think that group is probably the one. Go. Yeah. Seriously, I've heard Whitley do this uh, uh, both in private conversation with people and in the public. People who uh, have had an interaction with whether it's fear or excitement, trembling or whatever it is with that face on the cover of communion almost always are abductees. Do you think you are an abductee in the UFO ET abduction syndrome? I can't confirm or deny that, but um, uh, there was another researcher by the name of Constance Clear, County Clear, and she was from Texas, and she she wrote a book uh, about 15, 20 years ago. Uh, She's passed now uh, about the topic. And when she did my radio show in D.C., she gave everybody in my production staff a test, and two of us tested positive, as they say, okay? And um, uh, I can't confirm or deny it. Well... That's I can say. I, I wish I actually knew. If you but, were, if you were, almost, I'm going to just throw out a percentage, uh, at least 90% of people in the human abduction syndrome at some point within a year or three years from their first experience at age four or five or wherever, they will have a vivid, vivid dream as real as your consciousness right now in which it appears that the first contact intelligence is trying to show, explain uh, what is happening. Have you ever had a tremendously vivid dream that you thought was something non-human? Yes. Is it okay to talk about on the radio or? I would almost rather not. Okay. Uh, and- I, let's say it this way. I'm not openly out of the closet on the topic matter. It's a, uh, it's a, let us say it this way. If you've had that type of experience, it's as um, deeply spiritual and deeply personal as anything you might have. Well, to people listening to Phenomena Radio, I would like uh, to encourage people uh, listening to realize that we are at a time where thousands and thousands of people have had interactions with and missing time with a phenomenon that falls into the category of another intelligence. And that um, 
I have interviewed an awful lot of people and that I am open to people contacting me at earthfiles at earthfiles.com who may have vivid dreams or face-to-face physical contact. I'm especially interested in the what we'll call conscious physical interaction. And Cheryl, as I have said that, um, I feel it's uh, very strongly at this point as we're moving into 2017 that there are a lot of people everywhere around the world that they are either having vivid dreams or they have had encounters and they're not sure who to talk with and that the next big break has to be when we as a human family are no longer afraid of each other to talk because we are so worried about being condemned, uh, being ridiculed, and that if in talking with you today about your fascinating work uh, and coming to a point where you may have your own interaction and that another program we might be able to talk with you because you will have a, a better comfort level, that people listening should understand this isn't something that we need to be afraid of to discuss with each other anymore. That alone might be... Let me leave you with a tidbit. Yeah. In my family, uh, we refer to these dreams as the Lords of Zog dreams. It's our nickname for them. They're very specific. They've got a certain quirky unusualness to them, but the unusualness is pretty consistent with the members of the family who have had them or admit to having them. Okay. The Lord we talk, of Zog. We, talk, we call it the Lord's of Zog. It's a nickname. And uh, it has nothing to do with the actual dream. It's just a nickname. And uh, one common story we've all had was being as children, uh, we were four or five years old, we all seem to have uh, this dream of being uh, led away or dragged away by these three-foot little guys with bulbous heads. We're dealing with highly complex intelligence that has been able to make things to work on this planet. And what I hope, Cheryl, is that in a future Phenomena Radio, maybe you and some others could come and we could talk about this interaction between we in the human family, in spite of government policies of denial, the earth is beginning to demand that we all be able to tell the truth. You know, one of the best experiencer groups um, that I've seen, um, the one that they have with the IUFOC, uh, I think think the lady who leads this name is uh, Yvonne. She's a psychotherapist. And I got permission because I was a journalist. Uh, they wouldn't permit me to go the first time I went there. And I, I really pleaded with her to let me come in. I would leave my credentials Cheryl, upstairs, as they say. Cheryl, and she let me because yes. we are at a break, and this is so uh, interesting, we must try to organize another phenomenal radio to take all of this further. Please. But I want to thank you for a fascinating phenomenon. Thank you for being here. Thank you for doing the reference book. And may everybody go check out, where is it? At Amazon. Amazon.com. UFO sightings, desk reference, United States of America, 2001 through 2015. Thank you. Thank you. 
race. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Next week on Phenomenon Radio, Daniel Sheehan joins the show. And for John Burroughs, Linda Moulton Howe, tonight's guest, Cheryl Costa, I am producer Race Hobbs thanking all of you for joining us. Have a great night and a great weekend, everybody.